Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Girl, hey, welcome back to my weekly podcast, Taste of Taylor. I'm your host, Taylor Strecker, you guys, and today we have on an amazing guest. She has worked in the, mu- the music industry for years as a manager. She is also a founding partner of Hashtag I Voted. We'll be getting to that in just a little bit. Um, and also, she is the number one or a number one Amazon best-selling author, Emily White. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Taylor. Thank you so much, Emily. Okay, so first of all, tell us about this number one Amazon bestseller, because I can't say the name of the book, but you can. Yeah, not a problem. Um, My new book is called How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. Okay, amazing. So how long have you worked in the music industry for? Um, Since college, so uh, a little over 15 years. I read in your resume, actually, that, yeah, you were actually working, you were on tour, you were a tour manager. So you missed your graduation because you were on tour, correct? Yeah, I did. I did graduate, but I didn't walk because I was tour managing the Dresden Dolls and we were at Coachella starting like a three continent tour with Nine Inch Nails. Gee, so I'm not to like age you, but so how many years have you been in the uh, music industry for? Um, I mean, including college, it's coming up on 20. Wow. And so we have you on, we're going to talk a little bit more at the end of the podcast about hashtag I voted, but I voted essentially just in a nutshell. Um, it's a concert series. And if you vote, you get to be a participant in it. It's, it's that simple. We'll give you more details at the end of the podcast, but you are a founding partner for this for a very good reason, because you have a very strong background in music. So how did you even get started and how did you get in so young? Um, I mean, I'm a kid originally from a village in Wisconsin who knew no one in the industry when I started. When I started, now I know too many people. <laughs> um, but I went to Northeastern University. They have a great music industry program, and they also have an awesome co-op program, which basically means interning. So I did a whole bunch of internships in college. I actually have a my first book is called Interning 101, and it chronicles that and gives a lot of best practices. But I would say most significantly, um, I started working with the band I mentioned, uh, the Dresden Dolls, when I was in college. Um, although those internships were really significant because I didn't know what I wanted to do within music. So I was like, okay, I'll try everything. And then in hindsight, that was a really great background to become, uh, both a manager and entrepreneur. But yeah, starting with the Dresden Dolls, I really grew up professionally with that band and that led to working at their management company, Madison house, whose big client is the string cheese incident. Um, from there I went to live nation artists from there. I started my own company in 2008 and I've been doing that for the past 12 years. Yeah, string cheese incident. That really stuck out to me when I was looking at your resume because I had my first like real boyfriend who my parents 
hated. And he was like a big fish head. And, you know, like, of course, he wanted to expose me to like other jam bands, essentially. And I mean, for me, Dave Matthews is like a jam band as far as I'm concerned. But like to a real head, like it's fish and beyond. So I remember like, um, I went to a Disco Biscuits concert with him. <laughs> String cheese incident. And to anybody who's listening, and like you guys, I was that girl who absorbed the musical stylings of any guy I dated. So if he lo- if he was a jam band guy, I was wearing wool socks, Birkenstocks, and I made like a friggin' hemp skirt. You know what I'm saying? So I def- when I saw Strangey's Incident, I was like, I know the name. I don't know the songs because I, tr- I tried so hard to be cool, but... Unfortunately for me, String Cheese Incident was too cool for me. But I'm impressed. I mean, that is like a band's band, you know, really. Yeah, you know, I, I'm i not like the jammiest person ever. My, you know, my tastes are a little bit more in kind of like indie rock. But, right. um, you know, jam bands and starting with the Grateful Dead, I mean, it's really the most brilliant business model in the industry. You don't have um, to explain that because I, I, you know, a lot of people listening probably like, I've never, I don't know what the disco biscuits are. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and if you're my mom, you think that fish concerts are basically um, cult initiations, Aww. but like their jam bands are so awesome. And Dave Matthews, I think is a more commercialized jam yeah. band. But like, even when I bring up Dave Matthews now, I like, I'm not joking, Emily, Dave Matthews is my favorite band of all time. I just had this conversation with my, I was with my girlfriend's family um for her mom's birthday and we were just like hanging out we've been like a long day of like drinking and chilling and eating and we're like if you could go to any concert living or alive what would you go to right now because you know we can't go to concerts right now during this pandemic and i was like um dave matthews a hundo p and everybody tortured me (laughs) and i was like they're the like in my opinion the greatest band of all time and i the thing is though i think if you don't get if if you don't get it it, you really don't get it but jam bands like you said, they're their niche, but like they're a brilliant niche. Niches are actually something very important in the music industry, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm so grateful that I worked at Madison House out of college because, you know, that in, the jam scene really builds businesses around the artist and takes cool. care of fans a very close second. And mm-hmm. I've, I've done that for, you know, the rest of my career based on, you know, getting that knowledge at such a young age. What other kind of uh, genres of music have you worked with? Like literally every single one? I think so. Yeah. I mean, like I said, tons of indie rock. Um, you know, I've also worked in comedy and sports. I mean, that's not genres, but um, yeah, it is uh, classic rock. It, it, I mean, it depends on what people are into for a little bit of country. And you also, you did a lot of tour managing too, which is like in and of itself. So you can be in the music industry, but to also have a tour background, I just know from being on tour, like last year, Touring is a whole different beast that I don't think people really understand. But in the music industry, you can't really be an artist without the touring, correct? Um, I mean, you can because we live in a pandemic now. Well, so. now, yeah. <laughs> we're, fig- we're figuring out how to do it yeah. now. But pre-pandemic, that was kind of, I mean, I have heard before that that is where all the artists make their music. Like, even like an Ariana Grande. Like, she's making music on merch and on touring. Is that true? Or I mean, it, there's some truth to that. But, you know, there's also brilliant songwriters. There's brilliant producers. You know, there's uh, composers, uh, which I am kind of considering separate from songwriting. So not to take anything away from live, but... Right. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's tons of things people can do, uh, beyond touring for sure, but it is a very crucial component, no doubt. What was the wildest thing you've ever experienced while on tour? Cause tours are to, even like, 
our tour, we were, we were, we're big drinkers, but like, aside from that, like we weren't like throwing parties on the tour bus. Like we were playing Uno on the ground with like the crew. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's as wild as we got on our tour, but I just, you know, like tour life, even if you're not like, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll, it's still like a very nomadic, strange carny life. Like really yeah. it's abnormal. So what's the craziest thing you ever experienced living on uh, like a tour bus probably? Certainly nothing I could repeat publicly, <laughs> but, but at the same time, like we, it was work hard, play hard, right? Like yeah. you worked your butt off. We had an amazing crew. My best friend was our merch person. I loved, you know, the band and the artists I toured with. So yeah, we would produce like an excellent show. Um, but as soon as that was done, you know, we, I was like best friends with the crew and we would have a great time and chill out and, um, you know, meet new people in every city. And it, it was just the best time. I did it from age 20 to 23, which were like the perfect years. To be Prime playing. years. Yeah, I was, yeah. I'm like in my mid-ish to late 30s. And so I was like, I would have thrived at this, like in my late 20s. But now at this age that I'm at, I'm like taking like, you know, Dramamine to fall asleep because the tour bus rocks like a friggin', you know, sailboat I was it was not I loved it but I definitely like I felt my age when we yeah. were on tour so but I have such respect for people that are part because I never I mean touring performing is one thing but touring is a whole different ball game because you're performing yes but it's I mean listen anybody who performs night after night after night consecutively I have so much respect for I grew up doing theater when I was younger um but like people on Broadway, like bless them. I mean, th the amount of energy they're putting forth is just like, it, yes, it looks fun. And everybody's singing and dancing and having a great time. And it's a big party. But at the end of the day, it is so much work. And then with touring, you basically add, I mean, the traveling, the traveling is hands down the hardest part of that industry. At, at least that's what I thought. Yeah. And I will say like the main band I tour managed the Dresden Dolls, like they took really great care of themselves. And Amanda was in her late 20s. Amanda Palmer is the singer. She was in her late 20s at the time. And she would say, she's like, I'm so glad I'm having success now and not when I was younger. Because um, mm -hmm. she was so much better at taking care of her voice, doing yoga every day. I mean, Brian Bigley on the drummer is always taking great care of himself. So it was more like the crew <laughs> that, that we got a little wild and the band would live vicariously through us. Oh, yeah. We just got wild with our crew. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Our, our, I mean, I, I shouldn't say this because he likes to go by professional Dave now. I won't use his last name, but our sound person's nickname was Psycho Dave. So. <laughs> he goes by professional Dave. Exactly. Oh, my God. That's so funny. This episode of Taste of Taylor is brought to you by Beast Brands. I love Beast. They're the makers of premium organic hair and body wash, lotions, skincare products. If it has to do with your body, Beast got it. Beast products are skin friendly and they're also earth friendly. All Beast formulas are vegan, cruelty free, made in the US, and they're on a mission to reduce plastic waste and save the world like legit, of course, while making it feel beautiful. No, seriously. They have this Beast bottle. It's an aluminum pump bottle that holds a six month supply of any Beast all in one body wash. And because it's made from aluminum, it'll last you forever. You can say bye-bye to gross, moldy plastic bottles that are bad for the earth. And Beast products like their award-winning wash for everyone, tingle shampoo or green tea hand and body lotion, they smell amazing. Some are green and herbally. Some have a, like a eucalyptus tingle. Others a light citrusy scent, depending on the product, of course. But there's never an overwhelming perfumey smell. And Beast, they, it's just crisp, delightful, natural. 
And the reason they smell so good is because they smell like the natural botanicals they're made from. So follow Beast on Instagram at Tame the Beast and also simply at Beast. And then make sure to go to getbeast.com and enter my code TayTayBeast. They made it just for me and you. At checkout to save 20% off of your next purchase, go to getbeast.com and enter code TayTay, T-A-Y, T-A-Y, Beast at checkout to save 20% off your next purchase. And now to the podcast. You've said you've worked with every genre of music. You've, you know, toured for three years out of your career. I mean, so you know the music industry, like up, down, and all around. So something that is not taught, like it's not topical per se, but I have had so many conversations about this, Emily, and I've never had any sort of expert in the room to chime in on the conversation. So I recently was listening to a podcast, and there was a reference to Scooter Braun, um, you know, it, it, this, I, I'll just say what the podcast was. It was Call Her Daddy. And it was Alex's, you know, story after the big breakup between her and Sophia with an F. Because here's the truth. I just got into it because Sophia with an F just came out with her podcast. So I just listened to it. And I thought to myself, I'm only getting one side of the story. I got to go listen to Alex's version now. And then I also listened to Dave Portnoy's. I'm like, I'm in the thick of it. But Alex literally in her, I think it was the episode labeled The Funeral. She was talking about her version of what happened between her and Sophia and everything involved. And she brought up this idea when Scooter Braun called um, Barstool on behalf of Call Her Daddy, on behalf of Sophia uh, for Call Her Daddy. And like literally she was like losing her mind. And she's like, part of my friend, she was like, get the fuck out of here. I don't want to fucking talk to you, which I'm thinking he's a really big manager. You might not want to like, close the chat like the door on him completely <laughs> you know i thought like damn this girl has balls like scooter bronze no joke um but i understood what she was saying which is like he really didn't have any skin skin in the game so she was pissed that a man was speaking on behalf of her former female co-host like it just felt very unempowering to her as a woman so that's really it was less about scooter and more about sophia but she did say, Scooter, don't worry about me. Why don't you go give Taylor Swift her music back? That's what she said. And I thought, oh, we're still talking about this. And then I'm here with you and I'm like, wait a second. I have never had a clear answer on what went down between Scooter and uh, his name was Scott Borchetta. Porchetta? Porchetta. Uh, it basically is the same name as Scooter. It's like SBSB. And then Taylor Swift. You know, and Taylor Swift, of course, the musician that we know, we love. And you look at Taylor thinking she's so rich and like what she's, some people thought she was complaining and she was being a baby about it. And if she wanted it, she could have bought it. Other people thought that she got screwed over. None of us know what we're talking about. We're not music insiders. So why don't you break it down for us now that we have somebody who actually knows what the hell's going on? Yeah, not a problem. Um, the thing that I didn't understand about that is like Taylor and, uh, you know, and her team um, signed their master rights away initially. So when an artist signs that contract, that's what they're signing up for. Now, if this was like 1985, that would be your only option. But the part that I don't understand is she had been warned by artists not that long ago, like Prince, you know, yes. you know like changing his name to a symbol and writing slave on his face. Um, Janet Jackson fought really hard to get her master's back. So, you know, and then of course there's amazing people like Ani DeFranco and Fugazi that really blazed the trail. So you know, again, kind of back to the jam band stuff, like I've built my career 
you know, really championing artists on owning their own rights. And yeah. I think owning your master recordings is something that's really powerful. Yeah. So again, if this was 20 years ago or whatever, it'd be like, okay, you know, what that that's the way things are. But she was, she was warned by artists who came before her not that long ago. So when you sign your master rights, right recording rights away when you sign that agreement that's what you're signing up for so i don't think like i i i understand emotionally why she's upset but like that decision was made and again she was warned so just kind of intellectually that that whole thing confused me and and i teach at nyu in the clive davis program and my undergrad students felt the same way and they all grew up you know as huge taylor swift fans and they're like but she signed that agreement so what you know why are you complaining? You knew what you were signing up for right. when you signed that contract. When did she sign with Scott Borchetta? Was she much younger or? Yes. I mean, I, I, I only ask because this. as talent, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, when I, I worked for a big company that I no sure. longer work with. And I remember when I got fired, um, it was like, I, I, the contract was shite. Right. And so I hired an attorney obviously, because I was like yeah. in a non-compete for a year, which I'm like, I cannot not work in my industry for a year. Um, and my lawyer at the time was like, who the fuck let you sign is a horrible contract. And he's like, it's your fault legit for signing it. But like, how old were you? And I was like, I was in my early twenties and I'm like, and my parents are in the medical industry. They didn't know shit. So I definitely like, you know what the thing was? I was so hungry to get on the air that it was kind of like, Oh, like it, I, I think there is a point in time in, in the entertainment industry where people are so hungry to get exposure and get a platform that they're willing to maybe overlook things that they know they shouldn't or dismiss things maybe. Is, is, so is there any argument for that being the case or no? Her father's a stockbroker who owns equity in the company that owns the masters. So yes. she was very in the loop yeah. and, and very connected. And look, you're exactly right. Like you're excited. It's the beginning of your career. Um, I had the privilege of inter- interviewing Justin Vernon, you know, Bon Iver last year. Um, and he was talking about his stuff blew up on MySpace. All these labels were reaching out. And his manager, who's about our age, and this was, you know, the manager was in his 20s at the time. Justin said, gave him the best advice. It was just like, dude, just chill for a second, <laughs> you know? And like, and he didn't go with like the first offer, or the second offer, or the third offer. He waited till he found the right fit with an, an independent label that just made sense for him. So that's definitely easier said than done as, as you explained. But yes. um, yeah, it, like I said, just intellectually, it really bothers me. I'm like, Prince warned you, listen to Prince. I know, you know, the other night I was talking about, we were talking about um, how Michael Jackson owned the Beatles. And I actually had never heard that story. And somebody who I was with was like, no, this is how it happened. This is the story she told me. Michael Jackson was literally with uh, which Beatle? Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney. And Paul was saying how, Things were shifting in the music industry and his and like basically the Beatles entire catalog was coming up for sale and he was going to buy it. Like he was almost like like Prince, like telling you, like the Prince warning everybody, you know, like, don't go down the path. I did. Paul McCartney was almost like saying to Michael Jackson, you should do the same with your music. So you want to know what Michael Jackson, I didn't know this, what Michael Jackson the next day. He went and bought not only his music, but all the Beatles music. What a shit bag. I never knew that. Is that true? It is true. And just to technically clarify that, um, Michael bought uh, a stake, if not all of the Beatles publishing catalog. So it means actually it's even more brilliant um, from a financial standpoint. Uh, It means he owned the songwriting rights. So that means every time someone even covers the Beatles, Michael Jackson's now estate 
get if he still owns the stake in that. Right. But it, yeah, he bought the songwriting rights, basically, which is crazy for Lennon, Lennon and McCartney. You know? Oh, how? I mean, you think that they liked Michael Jackson after that? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, yeah, suppose you know. Apparently, Paul was super bitter about that, which is understandable. Damn. So. The music business is like the real housewives of any place you want to pick. It gets dirty and shady as, as all get out. I never it knew. Is, it is so the real housewives. <laughs> you have no idea. That is such an amazing analogy. <laughs> all roads lead back to Bravo for me. Like yes. literally all roads. Absolutely. It's so crazy. So as a whole, your life's dedication, you're, you're a professor, you know, you've written books, you know the music industry inside and out. So how would you explain it in a nutshell to the audience? Because I was just saying earlier, you know, we're talking about like touring and stuff and and we look at Taylor Swift and we're like, screw you, you're so rich. But I really think that when it comes to not just music, but entertainment as a whole, if you have a microphone in front of your face, if you have a camera, you know, on you, I think people automatically think that you are like, if you have any notoriety, people think you are rich and you are famous. If you are on tour, you are crushing. And it's, the music industry is an industry just like other industries, you know, there, I mean, there's, there, there's a lot more to it than just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, so how would you explain the music industry in a nutshell? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the most important thing, which is like the Cliff's Notes version of my new book is collecting as much fan data as you can. So email addresses, phone numbers for a text club and uh, lo knowing the location of your fans. So you aren't just touring, you know, in an arbitrary manner, you know, post post vaccine. Because we, we as, you know, fans, musicians, music industry people, we just give that data to Spotify. And before we gave it to MySpace and before that we gave it to Friendster. So if you build your followings on these platforms, like my point is tech companies are the most valuable companies in the world because they have all of our data. Right. So we need to empower artists and industry people so they can communicate with us directly instead of relying on these platforms when people get sick of Facebook or believe it or not, someone will, you know, people will get sick of Instagram someday. Like I said, there are plenty of artists that built their careers on MySpace. So, you know, you know, owning and controlling your data, understanding your rights, which right. is what we've talked about, right. and then collecting on all the revenue streams because I was sick of taking on national acts and finding money for them, which on one hand is definitely part of a manager's job. But if that's happening to artists we've heard of, what about everybody else? But I will say, what I love about the modern music industry is that technology has completely um, democratized it. So okay. any, anyone with a, a laptop or even a smartphone can record and distribute their music worldwide, which was not the case when you and I were growing up. So what was the case when we were growing up? Um, you would have to sign your rights away to a label because yep. they, because anyone who wasn't a one percenter couldn't afford a recording studio. Now right. you and I are recording right now, right? And, yep, from my house, and, exactly. And, and labels also controlled the means of distribution. Yep. Um, so just you'll be able to distribute this podcast very easily as well. And that was not the case when you and I were growing up. Well, it's the same too. And even though, you know, podcasting, music, they're not exactly the same. There's overlap. You know, it's audio, it's entertainment, the whole shebang. And, you know, I have this debate constantly of like, is technology, our social media platform is good for content creators, for artists, or are they like, are they bad? Because the good thing is that anyone can have a podcast. The bad thing is, anyone can have a podcast. So, you know, for example, I started my career at Sirius XM Radio with Cosmopolitan Magazine. It was like a brand partnership. And I was in, you know, in the crosshairs of two big powerhouses, which was great for me. And it was amazing that the editor-in-chief of Cosmos said, this girl is our girl. We give her this amazing opportunity. And it, I mean, I can't tell you how many celebrities, like actors, actresses, 
um, musicians, the whole shebang, reality stars, because that was big when I was on the air. I was there for like 11 years. They would come in and they were like, your job is so cool. I wish I could do your job. And I remember kind of thinking, well, thank God everybody can't just do my job because like I love my job too. And there's only so many time slots in the day and there's only so many channels here at Sirius XM. And I remember like in my young brain realizing and recognizing still like I'm so lucky that I got picked for this position because there's only so many to go around. And, you know, like I'm surrounded by famous people and talent all the time. And there's some, it it, it was really interesting because, you know, especially entertainment, some talent, they're like triple threats or at this point, they're like quadruple threats or like octomom threats. But like they can do so many things. But just because like you're good at doing YouTube videos doesn't mean you're good at hosting a podcast. Just because you're good at hosting radio doesn't mean that you can host a television. You know, just because you're a good actor doesn't mean that you can sing. It's like some people can, but that's few and far between. But I remember how lucky I was. And now, Emily, I cannot tell you Every single person, I swear to fucking God, who I've ever interviewed at Sirius, who was like, I want to do this. They are. They all have a podcast. And while I'm like the more the merrier and all boats ride with the tide, there is a part of me that's like, it was so much simpler when I worked at a place that only had limited spots. It made it a little bit more, I guess, quote unquote special. But the downside of that was, you know, I didn't own my master's. I wasn't in control of my financial destiny. You know, I was beholden to a business. If somebody came in new that was a manager who barely knew me and said, this girl sucks, I got fired, which is exactly what happened. So that's the thing is you don't have all the power, but, you know, I don't know. Is it is it good or is it bad? It's clearly I'm I'm having an internal struggle with it, you know? Sure. I guess I'm biased that it's good, but the caveat, which you honestly do really well, is like you have to be good at it, right? Like, exactly. so anyone can have a podcast, but like, is you know, are people going to listen to it? Um, and it's the same with music, right? Like, I because music is ultimately like infinite at this point. Like, um, my friend Mark Cates will say, like, you know, well, he'll say it the opposite way, but it's like good, not great. So you need to be great, right, yes. to stand out. Like, good is not good enough. Yes, exactly. But you do think that what is good is that everybody has the opportunity. They're not going to yeah. a Scott Forchetta who has to say, like, yeah, kid, you got the stuff. I'm going to sign you. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, like, I still had kids in my class at NYU who didn't know they could record and distribute on their own. So clearly we have a lot more education to do just to make sure every musician, every content creator knows that they can, you know, create and distribute content and then also knows that they have options. Like, go ahead, sign your rights away, you know, if you want to or do your own thing or some sort of hybrid. Well, I will say that, you know, I learned a big lesson after I, my, I was done with Sirius and my, I realized how bad the contract was. I mean, the contract was even worse. I actually did a pretty damn good job as a 20, you know, two-year-old on my own negotiating my pants off. However, um, once, you know, the ride was over, I realized how bad uh, the contract really was. Again, not their fault. They're just, when people are giving you contracts, they're giving you the best version for themselves. It's like anytime somebody gives you a contract, whether it's in business, whether it's in marriage, because we all, you know, people are signing prenups left and right. It's like, I remember I actually had to sign a prenup for my marriage. And I remember I said, at first I thought like, you know, this is so embarrassing, but I'm gonna tell the truth. I was inspired by an episode of Sex in the City when Charlotte was like, I'm worth more than a million dollars. I didn't say that amount, but I was like, I'm worth more than this prenup I have in front of me. And I remember I said to him, because we were in like 
like horn lock negotiations. And I got it. He was from a family business, generational. He had to protect it. I fully got that. I wasn't like, let's get married. And then like a day later, I'm like, we're getting a divorce and I own your share of the company. That's psychotic. But I also realized when I had in front of me, like, well, hey, you get to protect all your assets coming in. You get to protect, like, we're basically going to a, a marriage where you feel completely safe and I feel completely like I'm just hanging in outer space and it's scary. Um, and you don't want to start a marriage with a, like a massive, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Disproportion in power. So basically I was like, no, if this prenup is going to make you feel comfortable, this prenup is going to make me feel com- comfortable. And I had, you know, the foresight to see that. And I'm happy that I did that because then when we did get a divorce, it was like, well, we've got the prenup. So I don't even know why we're fighting because we've already fought this out. And it was actually the, uh, uh, all things considered pretty civil. We didn't end up in court. And I think it was, I really, it's because the prenup was actually so well thought out. Same thing with any contract, you know? And I think that a lot of times with people, especially if you're listening, if you're young, you think your first contract is your everything, right? Like you're nobody and you're so lucky to even get the opportunity. You know, it doesn't matter if it's entertainment or like any other job, you just want to say yes. But like a negotiation, like both parties, a good negotiation, both parties walk away feeling a little pissed off. Like they didn't get everything they want. That's the point. So right. if you just flat out sign a contract from a company, like you're allowed to say, I'm not comfortable with that clause or I don't really, you know, I do want to own my master's or I do want to own my work or whatever it is. And I think when you're young in an industry, you don't realize that you're even allowed to do that. You just sign whatever they give you. And then they're like, sucker, you know, laughing all the way after you finish signing it. But post working at Sirius, I learned to stick up for myself with contract signings. And I remember my number one thing was like, I will never sign a contract that has a non-compete ever again. Because, you know, I like to diversify the portfolio and have as many jobs as humanly possible, you know, in in the realm that I work in, in my niche. So that's something that I learned. But, you know, if I could just teach people from right now before you even have to go through it, I mean, bless. I wish I had somebody telling me that. I definitely would have, you know, things would have been a lot different, but live and, and learn. Just, and just read all of it. And also like, don't go into it from a place of fear. I mean, that's probably like good advice for a lot of things, but yes. I see that all the time. Um, in particular, sometimes with my sports clients, like, oh, contracts, I don't like, I'm like, just read it. You know, like I'm negotiating it for you, but like, I'm not an attorney, I'm reading it, you mm-hmm. know? Um, so there's nothing wrong with, yeah, just please read your contract. What's the and, t- and sorry, if there's something you don't understand, ask. Right, you know? exactly. Then you said, I, and who do I ask you? I'd be calling you every five, every five words. Oh, That's I'm confused job. again. I'm confused yeah. again. Not, but, but the more, as you know, the more of them you read, yep. you start to learn what some of those words mean. And, exactly. and I certainly have as a non-attorney and you have too. Yep. Um, what's the hardest, because you've worked not only in music, but like you said, comedy, sports, what is the hardest, uh, industry to negotiate in? That's a good question. I, I don't really have an answer. I, I, like, can I change your question? Yes, totally. <laughs> I, I think music is the hardest to work in okay. um, because it, it never stops where I, you know, my business, my former business partner handled the comedy stuff and we managed W. Kamau Bell and had writers on Don Oliver. And um, I, I always loved being like the comedy spouse because I would go to, you know, it's like, my film and TV friends work so hard, yeah. just like music people do, but it stops at some point and right. music just keeps going. So um, yeah, music is super exhausting. I, I put some limits on my time, but 
music can be really 24 seven with concerts and festivals and, and all that stuff. So it's, it's super intense. Let me follow up with this. So what is the hardest? So in the entertainment industry under that umbrella, what is the hardest uh, niche or, you know, business to be in? Is it music for sure? In terms of like the artists, like when we look at these superstars, we look at Beyonce, we look at Taylor Swift, we look yeah. at Ariana Grande, we look at Selena Gomez, like, and I know some of them cross over into acting and stuff like that, but you yeah. know, their bread and butter really is music. So when we look at artists, because I think sometimes we think, oh, you're like, we look at the Kardashians. They eat salads out of plastic containers. Like, you know, and they're so famous. And I think we look at everything like, what do you think the hardest niche is under the umbrella of entertainment? Yeah, definitely music. It's so competitive. It's so infinite right now. Our file sizes are the smallest, right? As opposed to like comedy, film, TV. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's just, um, and like I said, it's it's just a grind. It keeps going. They expect you to tour until you're, you, you know, Mick Jagger's age and beyond. Not that comedians don't tour for a long time, but like I said, it's like, that's what's nice about film and TV stuff. Like they work so they work just as hard, if not harder than we do, but there's a hard stop and you get a break. Yeah. You get a break. And there is no such thing. I mean, again, to go back to my favorite band in the entire world, Dave Matthews, he's never, I mean, this is the first, his wife must be thrilled. I mean, listen, I understand the quarantine and the pandemic global pandemic is like a real thing. No joke. Like people have lost their lives, their jobs, the economy's in the shitter. It's a scary time, but I bet Dave Matthews' wife is so happy he's home. She must miss him so much. I mean, the man never stops traveling. I know because I try to attend as many shows as humanly possible. Like, I would even be like, Dave, you can take like a year off, you know. We're still going to love you. But that's the thing. So I always thought that maybe that that was his drive. But are you saying that's the music industry driving the talent, like, to, to nonstop tour? No, that's his choice for sure. But look at Bob Dylan has toured until the pandemic soon. What is he, like, in his 70s or I just 80s saw Elton John. Totally. Yeah. I think I think this has loved performing though. But you and I were like, we're in our thirties and we're like, oh man. You guys tour life is no joke. I like (laughs) I never thought about it until I was actually on tour. And it's really hard. That's because I hate travel and literally tour is two things. First of all, actually, no, it's three things. It's travel, which sucks. Then it's nerves. It's inevitable. But it's like the nerves before the show. And you're like, what's wrong with me? This is our fifth show in a row. We know what we're doing. Like, why are we so scared? And then you go on stage. It's the best thing ever. Usually, God willing, because if it's not a good show, then you're just like crying after the show. But usually it's a great show. And then you're on this high and then you can't go to sleep. But you have to because you have to be up at six in the morning to like get on a tour bus or to catch a flight or what have you. It's like. I've I've never worked so hard in my entire life. And radio is also really like a hard grind, early morning, long mm-hmm. hours, like straight talk, talking straight for four hours was not a walk in the park, but like totally. that paled in comparison to tour life. Tour life is like, it's not for the faint of heart. That's for damn sure. Do you ever meditate? Oh my God. That's so funny. You brought that up. I'm everyone's like meditate <laughs> Taylor. If anyone needs meditation, it's you. Um, I have like tried a handful of times and just like masturbating, it doesn't work for me. <laughs> Amazing. I, maybe, I, maybe there's I think, an overlap there. I think it would help with like nerves and stuff. Some of the things you're referencing, it's like, I would meditate to. Did you see, that. like, did you, did you tour with people who like, didn't really get that nervous or did you always see talent get really nervous before? I, 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 yeah. I always wondered if there was talent when I was on tour, I always wonder, like, we would say, we say to each other, cause we were all so nervous. We were also all super green to being in front of a live yeah. audience like that. Right. And we were like in a position where, you know, the headliner, I was opening that the headliner was like, sure. but, but like very close to the headliner. Like she didn't treat me like a usual headliner, the tour manager 
informed me that he's like, you're lucky. Usually the headliner won't even let the opener look at them. I was like, well, la-di-da. She's my fucking best friend. So she better let me talk to her. But we would always be like, does everybody get this nervous? And we didn't know the answer because we really, you know, didn't have everybody to bounce it off of. Yeah. Most of the musicians I work with, I, I don't think really get nervous for stuff. I think they're pretty dialed in. But I manage an Olympic gold medalist named Anthony Irvin, and he won the 50 freestyle at the last Olympics by one one hundredth and it's wow. the 22nd race. Wow. So I, it's always very fascinating to listen to him and the other Olympians that I work with um, when they're asked about nerves. And Anthony is very wise. He's like the rock star of Olympic swimming. He's very good at like channel. He's like, if you're not nervous, something's wrong, right? Yes. It shows that you care. And then channeling that energy and, and harnessing it into his race instead of like blowing that nervousness like all day, all afternoon. It's like he has to exactly. hone that into his uh, 22nd race. Do you think meditating helps with controlling that? Yes. He's a meditator also. Interesting. Well, I will say like when I first started doing, let's say like, I'm not a comedian because I, I respect comedy too much to say that I'm a comedian, but I would say like I dabble in like a comedic form of art on stage at comedy clubs. <laughs> and when I was just doing solo stuff to a much smaller crowd, but it doesn't matter. That's the thing that people don't realize. Actually, the smaller the crowd, the scarier it is. Like I, if I have to perform to like eight people, I'm shitting bricks versus like I 8,000. It's like, oh, it's like a sea of people. It's not as scary. But when you can see individual reactions and faces, that's like when the pressure really is on. But I perform to these smaller audiences. We're talking like a couple hundred people versus like a couple thousand people. And oh my God, Emily, the whole day I was just in knots and I was like, I can't handle this. Like it's, it's too, like it's, it's, and then of course you go on you fall in love with the crowd and you fall in love with the stage. And then it's like, you get become addicted to it. But really I, you know, I definitely had thoughts of like, does this, can, can I like, should I take a beta blocker? You know, because, but I think that's a bad idea. I think you like lose that edge when you take, I mean, is that a common thing in touring that people take beta blockers? Um, not to my knowledge. Not to your knowledge. (laughs) Okay. So, um, let's talk about hashtag I voted. So you're, um, one of the founders of it and, uh, you guys, it's very important. And, uh, Emily, the floor is yours. Explain it to everybody. Thank you. Yeah. I'll just give you a brief background on how we got here, what we're doing, all that stuff. Um, so I'm, uh, originally from Wisconsin where the 2016 election was decided by 22,000 votes and change. It was decided in Michigan next door by 10,000 votes and change. I'd read that turnout was down in Milwaukee, where I'm from. And, I, and my tour manager brain was like, 22,000, that's our basketball arena. Right. Why don't we put together some sort of sick concert and tie in voting? And I realized, of course, if we took that concept national, we could have that much more impact. So for the 2018 midterm elections, we activated over 150 venues in 37 states to let fans in on election night who showed a selfie from outside their polling place. Wow. Um, all these amazing artists perform, Billie Eilish, Playboy Cardi, Maggie Rogers. Um, Crazy. And, yeah, and it was myself and an intern working on it. So it was just an idea that totally caught fire. Um, so now we've pivoted under the pandemic and we've been inviting artists to perform via webcast on election night. Cool. Fans can access the stream by RSVPing with a selfie at home with their blank or unmarked mail-in ballot. If you've already um, mailed in your ballot, you can take a selfie next to your, your post office to support USPS. We'll, we'll let that slide. Um, or from you can also take a selfie from outside your polling place. Um, if you're not 18 by November 3rd, you can send us a video letting us know what election you will be 18 for and why you're excited to vote. If you're not a U.S. citizen or ineligible to vote in any way, you can also RSVP with a video letting us know which artists you're excited to check out at the I Voted Festival. 
Um, now, instead of just getting talent that we hope people will like or that we think that they'll like, we've reached out to the top streaming artists in and or from each state. Um, we're not funded. We're a team of, you know, 100% uh, women at the executive level leading a team of 180 volunteers. Um, so because of that, we focus on 20, 25 swing states in the future when we're funded. I'd love to do all 50. Mm -hmm. And out of that, over 600 artists have confirmed, um, which unfortunately makes it the largest quote unquote music festival of the year. And it's also going to smash the record for the largest single night digital concert in history. Wow. All in support of voter turnout. And if you go to your website, you can see all the artists that are there. I mean, the list is yeah. so long, so yeah. long. It's yeah. incredible. Thank you. Awesome. So, yeah. So uh, where should people go for more information? I mean, you just gave it out, but just in case people, you know, they didn't have a chance to write it down or whatnot. Yeah, definitely. If you go to ivotedfestival.com, um, you can check every, you can, you can RSVP now. That system is live. Yep. Um, and you can, you know, see some of the artists we have booked. Um, Colin Malloy from the Decemberist, Jim James in My Morning Jacket. Cow and the Get Down, Stay Down, uh, Joshua Radin, Phantom Planet. I mean, it goes on and on. So uh, Young the Giant, W. Kamau Bell, Living Color, Citizen Cope, Drive by Truckers. And like I said, we're announcing more people every day. And just to clarify, because I feel like sometimes people think whenever I do anything that's politically, you know, uh, related that I'm like pushing um, a liberal agenda. This you just have to vote. You don't have to show who you voted for. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. We're, non we're nonpartisan, bipartisan. And that's why so many artists have come on board. They don't want to alienate anyone. That's amazing. Really incredible. And voting is so important. I have a confession, Emily. I didn't vote in the 2016 election. I was in New York City, so it didn't really matter. But it does matter is the point. And I was I admitted it because you can't you can't fix a problem if you don't admit that you have a problem. And then I got publicly shamed, um, which I deserved. And then I promised to never, never miss uh my opportunity to vote in any election so and great. i've held up my end of the bargain to date so um Amazing. it's so important for everybody to vote i definitely think I, I think people now more so than ever understand that message but um it's definitely not something to be taken for granted and obviously you guys aren't with this amazing you know collaboration that you're putting on to show thank that. you do you mind if i ask where in new york city you live i well i used to live in manhattan okay and i've recently shame have moved to new jersey that's fine it's all good i i don't know as much about new jersey politics but there are many you know races in manhattan and in brooklyn where i live that were determined by a few hundred votes and again wow. my brain and you can picture that that's a, that's a bar yeah you know so exactly. I mean, this is how you make tangible change and how you make a really how you really make a difference yeah i think the problem is that me i think last election a lot of people kind of thought um well do i really want to say this i, I will if I change my mind, we can edit it out. <laughs> but I remember thinking I didn't really love either candidate. And sure. so it was my right as a voter to not to choose neither. Um, however, you know, now four years later, I very much regret that decision. And you kind of don't have a leg to stand on when you didn't have skin in the game. Um, and so that's very frustrating for me as well. Um, but yeah, I definitely, you know, I think that um, it is easy, I think, because of the electoral college system. It's very easy to feel like, well, I live in a blue state. I live in a red state. So what does it really matter? You know, and especially in the midst of a pandemic, I know people are more looking for more excuses than ever to not leave their houses. You know, I mean, real reasons not to leave your house. But like if you're somebody who's not that motivated in general to, you know, maybe vote, it's like, well, the pandemic is a perfect excuse. So don't 
don't let that be a reason for you not to vote. You can do, you know, you can send your ballot in, you can drop your ballot off. There's so many different options. So it's very important. Spoken, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from somebody who's like, you know, I have, I have been a bad, bad girl. So I am not judging. I am just speaking as somebody who learned the error of my ways. So, you know, you don't want to be in that category because, uh, it's a bad one to be. That's for damn sure. And, and like I said, it's not. It's actually not just about president. It's like your local elections yeah. can affect you even Local's more. Local so very important, especially where important. we're going right now. Yeah, and what I love about the mail-in voting is because it's like I'm pretty. I think I'm pretty informed and engaged. And sometimes you get it in the voting booth. I'm like, who are these judges? And it's like I'm googling. And so it's so nice to do it at home, where you actually like have the time to research and aren't just like looking on your phone. Exactly. Exactly. I didn't even think of that. Actually, that's a very good point. Um, so yeah, don't forget guys, uh, if you vote and you better, then you can attend this amazing concert, uh, hashtag I voted and am I, is concert the right word? Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's turned into a festival cause, cause we're virtual, but, um, but yeah, it's a big concert as well, for sure. Unbelievable. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me and letting me ah. talk my crazy talk to you and answering all my questions about the industry. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Taylor, hit me up. Anytime you have music industry questions, this was super fun. Oh my God, you're going to be my go-to expert. I Love can it. so use you during the Taylor Swift stuff. There'll be another thing that happens with her. I guarantee it. And she'll be talking publicly about it. So I'll be calling you. For um, sure. You guys, that's it for us this week. Um, Emily, is there any more information that you want to share with the audience before I let you go? I think that's it. We just look forward to celebrating voting with you on election day. So come hang out with us. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll be there for sure. And uh, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in this week. Don't forget to vote November 3rd, uh, if not before. Thanks for listening to my podcast. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. That's how you support this independent artist. Um, and uh, next week, we'll be back with another amazing show. Until then, bye, girl, bye. Bye.